have open before you Acts chapter 28 on page 1126. And let us pray. Father God, we've been struck in these past months uh, as we've learned from this part of your word of how a small church changed the world. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us and teach us of the role that we can play in the spread of the kingdom in in Belfast and in Ireland and in the world now in 2009. Show us these things and impress them on our hearts. Amen. When we looked at chapter 27 a couple of weeks ago, we saw Paul going through a catalogue of dangers. He survived the sea. He survived a shipwreck. He survived soldiers who might have taken his life and a snake. We pick up the story now, and since those events, three months have passed. The, the men shipwrecked on the island of Malta have spent three months. They're probably from sometime in November, possibly to sometime in February. And by now the shipping lanes are open, and it's possible for them once more to set off towards Rome. They take on, uh, they go on to a different ship, their own having been shipwrecked, and Luke plots for us the remaining part of the journey to Rome, first of all by sea and then by land. They land on Sicily, in Syracuse, the capital of Sicily, Then they go further north to Regium on the toe of Italy. And finally they land in Putoli, which is a port of Rome, although it's quite a a distance from Rome. I wonder what was going through Paul's mind as he landed finally and as the ship put down anchor in Putoli. He must have been a little bit nervous. Just to the north was the port of Misenum, and that's the home of the Roman fleet. I imagine as he saw that, he just saw a huge symbol of the power and might of Rome. Nearby as well were the beaches of Baiae, where the wealthy Romans relaxed and they sailed their yachts. Paul would immediately have been struck that he was going into a place of great wealth and great influence. Power, wealth, and influence. And here he was, a humble Jewish tent maker, approaching the greatest city in the world. Paul was nervous, I would imagine, but he was also wonderfully excited. Paul had been waiting for this for years Three years earlier, in AD 57, Paul had written to the Christians in Rome of his desire to come and see them. It's wonderful how the the Acts narrative fills out some of what we read in some of Paul's letters. Turn with me to chapter 1 and verse 9 of Romans, just over the page there. Paul says in chapter 1, verse 9 of his great letter, God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last by God's will, the way may be opened 
for me to come to you. He goes on. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Paul has wanted for years to go to Rome and to meet the brothers and sisters there and hear his prayers and his dreams come true. In the midst of this nervous excitement uh, that I'm imagining that Paul has, we discover again that he's not alone. Uh, We learned in chapter 27 that he made his journey the the final leg towards Rome with Luke and Aristarchus. Those two at least are with him. But that's only the start of us. Luke tells us in verse 14 that some brothers invited them to stay for a week in Putoli before they pushed on for Rome. So there are already Christian communities on the Italian mainland. And when Paul arrives, they welcome him into their fellowship. I can only imagine the level of excitement that there was on their part and on Paul's part uh, when this this great missionary, uh, this great gospel preacher came to visit with them. And then Luke gives us this wonderful account of the very last miles. They're journeying now from Putoli along the Apian Way, the most famous of all those famous Roman roads. Luke tells us that the Christians from the city came to the Appiae Forum. That's 43 miles out. From Rome. They've come to welcome their friend as he approaches. And then they, they meet him also at the three taverns, more of them, 33 miles out from the city center. The Greek word for these groups coming out to meet Paul is, is a very specific word. It's a deputation that you send out to welcome a, a returning general, victorious in battle, or a king. So we, here we have Paul. A, a, a nothing in the world's eyes, just a humble tent maker who talks to people about Jesus. And, and yet there's this identification with him as a, as a great man coming in triumph. And friends, that's what he is. Despite all appearances, despite his own claims that he is the least of sinners, Paul has become something wonderful in Jesus. He's become a man who's brought the gospel to thousands around the world. No wonder then that Paul thanked God and was encouraged at the sight of these men. Folks, that's the first of the great Acts themes that I want to pick up in our passage this evening. Paul again is in the company of his gospel partners. He goes to Rome, this final leg of his journey, and he goes not alone, but knowing of God's presence and of the presence of these friends. Now that I've come to the end of Acts, I suppose I'm I'm thinking for myself, what what have I learned as I've studied this this wonderful record of the early church? And I think this is new to me. I don't think I understood the extent of Paul's partnership in his ministry. I always thought of Paul as a kind of a heroic trailblazer. Yes, he he name-dropped people from time to time. I was conscious that he had... Uh, people that he worked with from time to time. But what has struck me uh, as I've read Acts in its entirety is that he's, he's hardly ever on his own. He works and he shares Jesus in the company of gospel friends. 
And folks, it struck me as a lesson that we want to take away from the book of Acts that we've looked at together. I wonder if our understanding of a group like this is, is a little too limited. That it falls too short of the glory of what it is to be men and women in the church of Jesus Christ. What do we see when we look around on an evening like this? Do we see members of the club? Other guys whose names happen to be on the list at Kirkpatrick Memorial? Do we see acquaintances, people who have a mild interest in our lives, people with whom we can make a a little conversation? Or have we begun to see ourselves as partners, men and women who will work together, who will do all that we can to encourage one another and support one another as we take the gospel into our neighborhoods and our workplaces and our contexts where God has put us? When did we last pray for somebody? Not so much that God would help them through a sticky patch, but that God would help them share the gospel in their their workplace. When did we last tell somebody that we were praying that prayer for them? When did we encourage them and let them know that we stand beside them as partners in ministry? Folks, let's excel at this work this encouraging each other for the work that Christ has called us to. Let's be gospel partners. In verse 16, Luke tells us that Paul was allowed to live by himself with a a guard, a soldier to guard him. Paul's been granted here in Rome what the, the Romans called custodia militaris, and it allows him his own lodgings so he can live in a place of his own choice, but he remains under the surveillance of a Roman soldier. So he's chained constantly to a Roman soldier, but he's allowed to do that in his own home. And Luke tells us in verse 30 that for two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and he welcomed all who came to him. It sounds like such a limited experience being chained to a Roman soldier under house arrest. What could you possibly make of a time like that? Well, Paul... Uh, we, we probably won't be surprised to discover that Paul did an awful lot with this two years that he had made available to him. For a start, this is the period in his life where Paul wrote a number of his most significant letters, his prison letters, as we call them. The letters to the churches in Philippi, Ephesus, Colossae, and possibly also Philemon. Some of the commentators would say, you know, there's something distinctive about these letters. The ones that Paul wrote while he was a prisoner, while he was under house arrest, have a different flavor than than the ones that he wrote as a free man. Paul, you see, is facing trial here. Possible persecution and, and, and even death. So he has a wonderful perspective that comes through very strongly in these letters. We saw a fortnight ago how how Paul trusted God through a storm and through a shipwreck. He already considers himself a dead man. The only life in him is the life of Christ. And now he writes from prison, waiting to see the most powerful man in the world, the emperor. But Paul has a whole different perspective. 
The big person on his horizon is not Nero, the emperor of this time. The big person on his horizon is Jesus Christ. So these letters to Ephesus, Philippi, and Colossae, they emphasize more than any other book in the Bible the complete authority of Jesus Christ. Paul tells us that God created all things through Christ, that he's reconciled all things to himself through Christ, that Christ humbled himself to death, but that God raised him and exalted him to sit at his right hand. All things, says Paul in these letters, are under Jesus' feet. God wants Jesus to have supremacy in everything. The irony is that while Paul is in the center of the Roman Empire, waiting to meet the most powerful man in the world of his day, his horizon is not full of Caesar, but only full of Christ. Paul wrote his prison letters. Paul welcomed a lot of friends while he was in prison. Timothy seems to have been with him for much of the time there. If you read the letters that Paul wrote in this period, he often mentions Timothy as being with him and almost a co-writer. So the letters to Philippi, Colossae, and Philemon begin with references to both men. Sometimes Tychicus was with him. For a while, Epaphroditus was there. And sometimes he had the company of Mark. So Paul has all these friends coming to him and calling with him. So Paul writes letters while he's in prison. He encourages his friends. But another thing that he does is that he preaches while he's a prisoner. This, after all, is what Paul's all about. You have to do a bit more than lock him up to stop him from preaching. As long as God gives him breath, he shares the good news of Jesus with all around him. We get a bit of an insight into this in Philippians. Paul writes in that particular letter about this time in prison. He says in chapter 1, verse 12, Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Do you see how Paul sees his life? I think if I was locked up and chained to a prison guard, I'd be inclined to think, goodness, I've lost all my opportunities to share the gospel. Here I am, locked up, woe is me. What does Paul do? He says to himself, well, here I am, chained to my audience. These guys rotate through here. They're with me 24-7. Half of the Praetorium Guard has come through here over these two years. They're chained to me. What am I going to do while they're here? What am I going to talk to them about? Man United's opportunities to win five trophies. What's going on in the latest soaps? Paul preaches Christ to the very guys at the other end of the chain. Every moment of every day of his life, Paul looks for those opportunities to share Christ. I wonder if you're familiar with Paul's short letter to Philemon. Philemon is a believer, probably 
from the city of Colossae. And Paul writes to him, it's, it's just a really short one chapter letter. And the real purpose of his letter is to ask Philemon to receive back his runaway slave Onesimus. You see, Paul, while he's a prisoner in Rome, has met Onesimus. And Paul writes to Philemon, I then, as Paul, an older man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Welcome him back as you would welcome me. Do you see what Paul says there? He calls Onesimus his son. A young man who became his son while I was in chains. Onesimus is like Timothy. He's one of Paul's spiritual sons, one of those whom Paul has won for Christ. Paul wrote letters while he was in prison. He encouraged his friends while he was in prison, and he preached to soldiers and fellow prisoners alike. We get a little bit more of a detailed insight into some of Paul's preaching in verses 17 to 28. And I want to look at these just for a moment. Three days after he's arrived in Rome, Paul does what he always does, and that is that he connects with the Jewish community in the city. He calls together the Jewish leaders, and he explains to them why he's come among them. Paul's always been convinced that the gospel is God's power for the salvation First of all for the Jew and then for the Gentile. So Paul never, ever gives up on his own people. Here he is in the Gentile capital of the world and the first people he speaks to are his own people, the Jews. What he begins by doing is simply by setting the record straight. He lets them know that he's done nothing against the Jewish people, against Jewish customs, He explains how he was arrested in Rome and how the Romans had found him not guilty of any crime. He explains how the Jews had objected to his acquittal and then how he had appealed to Caesar and for that reason had been brought to Rome. Paul's keen to explain to to all these Jews in Rome that it's because of the hope of Israel in verse 20 that I am bound in these chains. I found it quite surprising. The guys in Rome, the the Jewish community in Rome, didn't seem to have heard too much about Paul. They neither had letters about him, nor had they heard any direct reports about him. They'd simply heard about this sect, this Christianity, this following of Jesus of Nazareth, which had arisen within Judaism. So Paul arranges a meeting with them, And he speaks to them about Jesus. One of the things that I've found fascinating as we've read through Acts is how different sermons in different contexts preach the gospel in different ways. A classic example, of course, is Paul in Athens, where he doesn't mention the Old Testament at all because he's preaching to to pagan Gentiles. But here when he's in Rome reaching the Jewish community, what is it Paul does He talks to them about the law of Moses and the prophets who interpret Moses. And he uses them to demonstrate that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. 
Luke tells us that some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. Paul's never one to mince his words or pull his shots. And we see that here at the very end of Acts chapter 28. Some of the Jews begin to leave, particularly when they hear his concluding comments in his sermon. Paul makes this community of Jews in Rome subject of an Old Testament prophecy. It was a prophecy that Jesus had used of unbelieving people in his time, and so had John. Hundreds of years earlier, the prophet Isaiah spoke to Israel, and he said, you'll be ever hearing, but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's hearts has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. Paul reaches back to the prophet Isaiah a a prophecy that would have been very very hard for Jewish people of any era to hear and he says you're it. You folks here in Rome in this period under Nero You stand in continuity with your forefathers as a community of people who are hardened to God. You've closed your eyes to what God has shown you. You've put your fingers in your ears to what God has spoken to you. You've hardened your hearts and failed to respond to Jesus, the Christ, the chosen one of God. In Acts chapter 28 and in verse 28 Paul reaches a conclusion that he had reached many times over and over again throughout his ministry therefore he says since you Jewish people the so called people of God will not hear the gospel of Jesus Christ I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen reading and preaching through Acts over the last year I have been struck time and again by Paul's tenacity as a preacher he will not give up he simply won't stop preaching to the Jews no matter how many times Jews have opposed him despite the fact that it's Jews who have had him imprisoned and have forced that whole legal issue, despite the fact that they tried to kill him. Here's Paul after 30 years of that kind of Jewish opposition. What does he do as soon as he lands in Rome? He looks for the Jews. He looks for his own people. He longs that his own countrymen, those of his race, would know and find Jesus. But he's not limited. There's no tunnel vision with Paul. Whenever he sees that the Jews don't respond, then he turns to those who will respond. When the Jews turn up their nose at his message, he moves on and looks for others outside ethnic Judaism. 
who will respond positively to the Savior. Folks, I want this kind of balance in my ministry. A willingness to keep going to those people who are our own, if you like. To those who have been Presbyterians, maybe nominally so. People who have heard of Jesus many, many times. They've heard countless Bible readings and sermons, but who still haven't found Jesus as their Savior. We must go to them. We must share Jesus with them. But we must go to others too. We see it in the ministry of Jesus and we see it here in the ministry of Paul. There comes a time when you move on from those who have heard it all before and have now heard it from your lips. There comes a time when you go to the unlikely people in the unlikely places. Those people who don't know their Bibles and who don't know the way of salvation. We must go to them also and present them with the invitation to come and know Jesus Christ. I wonder what you made of the ending of the book of Acts as we read it uh, a little earlier in our service. It's not, not a great ending, is it? At one level. What is it about it that we find a little frustrating? Well, for a start, we don't know what happened to Paul. We've been following Paul and we've come through so many things with him. And Luke doesn't tell us what happens, whether he was executed or whether he was released for a time. By the way, both of those are are valid options according to, to some or other commentators. On reflection, it seems to me that there's a reason why Luke doesn't go on to tell us about Paul's life. It's because he never intended to. That's not the story that Luke set out to tell. What was the story that Luke set out to tell in the Acts of the Apostles? Can you remember? Back to the start. Luke tells us right in chapter 1 what this story is about. It's about Jesus commanding his followers to take the good news about him first to Jerusalem, then to Judea, then throughout all Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. (coughs) Pardon me. The gospel has reached Rome. It's gone right to the center of the world of that day, and Luke's story is finished. The story began a little over 30 years ago in Jerusalem, and now it's ended in Rome. Folks, another thing that I've learned here is just how absolutely incredible this period was. 30 years. It began 30 years ago with a crowd not much bigger than this. And and by the time we get to Acts chapter 28, you have tens of thousands of Christian people meeting in cities and towns and villages throughout a huge part of the Roman Empire. It's a wonderful wonderful story of the Spirit of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ sweeping through the world. That's the story that Luke wanted to tell. 
and his story is finished. I've seen actually a few stories that finish like this with quite abrupt endings. I've read some fiction that ends a little bit like this. And I think stories that end like this can be wonderfully inspirational. You get the sense when you read Acts that although Luke's story has come to an end, there's another story and a bigger and a much farther reaching and a much greater story that will continue, that will, will simply gather momentum and that will roll relentlessly into the future, into all times and all places. That's the sense that we get here at the end of Acts chapter 28. I didn't get a chance to look it up, but doesn't C.S. Lewis say it at the end of uh, the last battle? Or is it at the end of the land in which in the wardrobe? I'm not sure. He talks about how this is the end of, of this story, but the beginning of all the, the greater stories that are to come. That's what happens here at Acts 28. You see, Acts has told the story of the early apostles. That's why we call it the Acts of the Apostles. And it's a wonderful story and it's a very dynamic one. But the great mistake that we would make just now as we finish in our studies here is to think that that's it. That the story is somehow over. A much better way to see Acts, I think, is to see it as chapter one. A chapter that's closed. And that each generation of the church of Jesus Christ must now play their part. Must find their place in this this spreading of the good news of Jesus. Uh, We must, with the same energy that Paul and Peter did, with the same openness to his spirit and courage, we must go and face our world. Go and face Belfast of 2009 with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Acts actually ends. Do you see that sentence there in chapter 31? It says, Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. If you look that up in the Greek, the final word would be the word for without hindrance. What Luke wants to leave us with is an open door. A sense that all is open before us. The opportunity to take the gospel to the world is ours as followers of Jesus Christ. John Stott gives a a wonderful closing summary. He says that Acts ends with the prospect of a mission radiating now from Rome and to the world. Folks, let's join together. And let's pray that God would, would do something among us. Something along the lines of what he did with this awesome early church. I want to pray for you this evening. Using some words from Paul's letter to his friends in Ephesus. I think when we read something like Acts, our default position is to say that's not for us. What 
God achieved in those 30 years cannot be repeated and certainly not through us. Listen to Paul's words. His prayer for the Ephesians. He says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Folks, let me pray this prayer for us tonight. Let's pray. Father God, as we have come to the end of this wonderful book, we have seen unimaginable things done. We've seen how you changed the face of the earth in the space of one short generation as your followers took your gospel in the power of your spirit. Lord, you are able to do immeasurably more than we could even begin to ask much more than we can even imagine. Lord, we pray that you would do these kinds of things in us. According to your purposes, work in us and through us. Lord, take away the glass ceiling of our minds, the limits that we place on what you can do in us and in this church. Make us men and women who have new horizons, much bigger and much broader than any that we've known until now. Lord, we pray this because we want you to have glory in the church. We want Jesus Christ to have glory throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.